The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Verses 97 through 112. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my <clears throat> meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my <clears throat> life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statues forever to the end. You can go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, you can start finding your way to uh, Romans chapter 6. We're continuing our series this morning to law and gospel. We're really focusing in on what the role of the law is in the life of the believer as we're kind of getting closer, like maybe like two weeks away from starting our series in Deuteronomy. Typically, uh, if, if you've been around the church for any length of time, typically what we do is teach through books of the Bible. So uh, we were most recently in John, then we just did a short mini-series in Acts to see kind of the continuing work of Christ in his church after we had studied the Gospel of John. Now as we head toward Deuteronomy, we thought it was appropriate for us to, to look at this issue of law and gospel and how exactly does, uh, the, what role does the law play in the life of the believer? It's important for us to understand, especially as we're about to get into uh, one of the books of the law, Deuteronomy, and we're going to be looking at the law and its, its different facets. It's good for us to understand it. It's also profitable for us to, to understand it. And as I've mentioned multiple times in this series, the gospel isn't something that's relegated to the New Testament. And the law isn't something that only belongs to the Old Testament. We see law and gospel in both Testaments. Uh, it always make, makes me laugh to think of this, of one of, one of my sef, uh, seminary professors saying his least favorite page in the Bible is that one that sits right between the end of the Old Testament and the one in the New Testament, the one that reads New Testament. He says, yeah, he kind of pulled a, a dead poet society kind of thing, like, tear it out! Because um, what often happens is we see this dividing page and we think that something completely new 
is starting and the, the old can be forgotten. Where we understand that the totality of God's word is given to us, as Paul writes to Timothy, it's, it is all profitable for us. In fact, he told Timothy that the, the scriptures, and at the time that he wrote to Timothy, the New Testament scriptures had not yet been written. He said the scriptures have pointed you to Christ. So we understand that the Old Testament points us to Christ. So, so far in our series, we first, our first week we looked at the law and the covenant of works. And we, we looked at how Adam and Eve were created. They're placed in the garden and God entered into a covenant with them. This covenant of works or was sometimes called a covenant of life or a covenant of creation. He entered into this covenant with him. And as we know the story, Adam and Eve miserably failed to keep their end of the covenant. They, they sinned against God. They, they fell from this condition that they had before God, walking with God in the garden, to this sad point where when they sinned, they immediately were afraid of God. When they heard the sound of God in the garden, they ran and hid. They were even ashamed in front of one another. So we immediately see as sin entered the world, how that relationship between man and God and man and man is broken. And that's the rest of the story as it unfolds. God gives this promise to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, 15, promising to send the Christ, the Messiah, this hero who will come to crush the serpent's head to, to put an end to sin and death forever. And the idea there is that once that covenant of works is broken, we are no longer to relate to God based on that covenant of works. We're no longer to try to flee to our good deeds, to our righteousness, to establish that right relationship with God. Instead, God says, no, you need to look for a mediator, the Messiah, the Christ to come, the, the snake crusher. You're supposed to look to him, not to your own righteous works. That has been done away with. You have failed in that regard. Don't, don't flee back to it. So he even puts them out of, out of the garden, uh, away from the tree of life, so that they wouldn't follow their own righteous deeds, their own good works to try to reestablish a right relationship with God. They, they cannot be justified. And we, we talked about the idea of this covenant of life kind of being seen in the, in the phrase, do this and live. The expectation was, the command was that if you perfectly obey as we talk about often in thought, word, and deed, if you perfectly obey, not just slightly obey, not just mostly obey, but if you perfectly obey, then you will have eternal life. And in that sermon, we flash forward to Matthew 19 as, as the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and he, asks, he asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And we talked about Jesus kind of putting the law upon the man because the, the man thought that he had kept the commandments. The man thought that he had done enough good to enter into eternal life. So what Jesus did in using the law was he exposed to the man that no, he like everyone else falls far short of the glory of God. Do this and live for us after the fall is not a good thing. We can't do it, so we have no eternal life. So we, we ended that first sermon with the question, that the, the same question that the disciples had for Christ. 
after they saw that scene with the rich young ruler, they asked Christ, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And the answer is in our own power, and it's by following that, that covenant of works, no one can be saved. No one can be saved. But Jesus gives the comfort, comforting words that he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Which took us into our next sermon as we looked at Romans 3, and we saw that the way that man is justified before God is by faith alone. Where the law says do this and live, the gospel points us to Christ's last words on the cross saying it is finished. He came and did it for us. That the mediator that was promised back in Genesis 3.15, the snake crusher, came in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God, who came and lived a perfect life that you and I can never live. Perfect in thought, word, and deed not doing anything forbidden by God and doing everything required by God. Jesus stepped into humanity and did it for us. And then even though he was sinless, he died on the cross, suffering the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And in that, he gives us, when we enter, uh, as we come into Christ by faith alone, he brings us into the family of God. He adopts us as sons so that as the gospel message is shared throughout the pages of Scripture, we realize that we have nothing to boast in of ourselves. We can never, as the famous question goes, we can never stand before the throne of God and, and, and plead to him any of our good works as a, as a reason why we can dwell with him in eternity. We can never boast of anything in and of ourselves. Our only boast is in Christ. So we are justified by faith alone. And we, we ended that sermon with the question then, well, if the law doesn't save us and we are justified by faith alone, not by works, but only in, by faith in Christ, then what role does the, the law have, have in the life of the believer? How does a believer relate to the law? And that is kind of kind of what we're, getting to this morning. How do we relate to the law? Let me pray, and then we're going to read through uh, Romans 6 together. Father, as we come before your word, I, I pray that you would just humble us under it. Even though, Father, it's words that we maybe have heard a thousand times or maybe words that we've never heard before, I pray that you would do your perfect work through your Holy Spirit through your words. Father, help me uh, to only say the things that are in agreement with your word so uh, that those who hear, including myself, would hear you speaking through your word. Help us to, to believe, to understand your word, to believe it and to obey it. Help it to comfort us. Father, if we are in Christ, I pray that it would be a, a great comfort for us that you would grant assurance to us through the proclamation of your gospel that can only be had through Christ. Father, if we, for those of uh, us here this morning, for those here who, who aren't in Christ, who don't believe in Christ, who maybe have never even heard the gospel, Father, I pray 
that these words this morning would be also words of comfort. That rather than turning away sorrowful like the rich young ruler, they would flee to your grace and mercy. Father, we praise you that you are the God of everlasting loving kindness, that your, your loving kindness endures forever, that we can run to you. Help us this morning as we run to you, find you in your word, that we would delight in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 6, let me read the, read the entirety of the chapter. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to point out a few things from this chapter and kind of use it as a springboard to kind of walk us through uh, what we've been looking at so far 
But first, I just want you to notice in this passage the contrast between death and life. The contrast between death and life. Verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We, we talked this morning very briefly in Sunday school about being, being united to Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Christ has died and raised and so we in Christ, as we're united to him, we die with him and we are raised new, to new life. This is why Paul in Galatians 2.20 speaks like this. He says, I am crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. This is, this is how closely we are united to Christ, that our life is hidden away in him. And this is the language that Paul speaks about in Romans 6, that we died with Christ. He died for our sins and we died in him. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are raised up to newness of life. That idea of newness of life is kind of going to be the, the main focus of the sermon this morning, that newness of life. Notice in verse 13, it says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your, members, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So because we've been brought in our union with Christ from death to life, there's an expectation that we no longer should give our body over to the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of unrighteousness. But as we live in Christ, we should be giving ourselves over to, the de to deeds of righteousness, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So much so that Paul uses this idea of, of slaves. In verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That language can be hard for us to swallow, especially think kind of with our, with our Western independent mindset, like slaves of someone, no thank you. I don't belong to anyone else. But I would say and challenge that line of thought that the sweetness of the gospel tells us that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we, but we belong to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to him. This is, this is a, a wonderful thing, and it's as Paul paints this picture of a master slave relationship that we should, in, instead of being slaves to unrighteousness, should be slaves to righteousness. He goes on in, a, in chapter 8, verse 14, he, he kind of brings into fuller focus what that relationship is that we have. He says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the beauty is 
that we don't have to be ashamed to belong to God. In fact, there's no better place to be. Kind of reminds me of, of Peter's words when, when many of the, the followers of Christ at the time, he, he says something that's hard for them to understand and many leave and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you also going to leave? And he says, and Peter says, Lord, where, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Very much the same thought here. I can't imagine belonging to anyone better than our loving Heavenly Father. This is why many of the writers of Scripture will even call themselves slaves. And they're unashamed. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He's, he's unashamed to call himself a slave. He's unashamed to align himself with Christ to the point where he says, I belong to him. It's a belonging that's sweet. It, it goes beyond the relationship when we're under the law, where we're terrified of the law because of, of its condemning nature. We're therefore terrified of the lawgiver because he stands above us as a judge. We're terrified of his verdict coming down that we know that all of us know is guilty. And the punishment is death. But the gospel brings us into right relationship with God where we no longer see him as judge. And though we belong to him, we call him father. As uh, our Confession says, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 21, it says, We yield obedience to him, to God, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. And then again in chapter 18, talks about the cheerfulness in the duties of obedience that we can have as Christians, that we cheerfully obey, and that in itself is a proper fruit of our assurance you get that? It's the prop, our, our obedience and cheerfulness in, in obedience is the proper fruit of assurance. It's that relationship that we know God as our Father, that we are comforted by Him, that we know that we could never earn a right standing before Him. We could never go before Him with anything to boast in. It's, it's that understanding that we go to Him with empty hands, claiming, only Christ, boasting in only Christ, that we have this great assurance that he calls us sons, that he's adopted us into his family, that he calls us heirs, heirs along with Christ. And it's from that place of assurance that we then can go and cheerfully obey. Well, as we consider these words of, Rome, of Romans chapter six, and we think of coming from death to life, being dead to sin and alive to righteousness, being, being no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, this idea of belonging to God. We're going to look this morning at the law, and this is how, the, how believe, as we believers ought to look at the law through different eyes. We have so far in our series really been looking at the law as something terrifying. But as God calls us, into his family. As he says, I no longer judge. Christ 
has absorbed my righteous judgment, my wrath. So Paul can write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when there's no condemnation, then we no longer are afraid of the judge. And the judge himself says, he comes and wraps his arms around us, around us and calls us sons and daughters. So we can say we are sons and daughters of the living God. We no longer fear him as our judge. And something happens with the law from that point on. So I want to go back just a little bit to see where things went sideways with the law. Look with me in Genesis again. As we looked a few weeks ago, I briefly mentioned this in the first sermon on on law and gospel. But it's important that we understand the context that the law is given to Adam and Eve, this this covenant of works. Chapter 2, verse 5. It's written, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The idea is that the law is given to man in in a position where God has abundantly provided for him. Not only has God breathed the breath of life into into Adam. He, he creates Eve. He gives him this, com, this companion. He places him in a garden with every tree, with fruit, good to eat. And he tells the man, look at all I've made for you. You have life. You have companion with, companionship with your wife. You have communion with me. You have an abundance of food for you to enjoy. That is the context that the law of that one tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one tree you shall not eat. But everything else is yours to enjoy. Everything. I've given it all to you. That is the context that the law is given in, in an absolute abundance of provision from God. But then Genesis 3 comes along, and the serpent, along the the first six verses of chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, the first attack against the law of God is an attack upon God. The serpent comes and he causes Adam and Eve to doubt the gracious provision that God had given, given them. He causes them to doubt the lawgiver. So they begin to look with skepticism upon the law itself. This right here, this passage is the birth place of legalism and antinomianism. I think we're familiar with legalism. Antinomianism is lawlessness. And you see what happens is Eve begins to see the law instead of it being meant for her good, that God says, eat all, all that I have given you except for this one thing. And instead, of that, instead of seeing the law that it was meant for her good, she separates it. She takes the, that, the law that God had given, she separates it from God's love and generosity, and she begins to see it as a restriction. She begins to see it as something that God was keeping her from. In fact, she adds something that previously isn't mentioned. Don't even touch it. That's kind of a legalistic heart there. We say, okay, this is what we're not supposed to do, and I'm gonna start kind of building all sorts of fences around it. Don't even touch it, she adds. But you see, as the serpent came down, as Satan comes down and he causes her to doubt God, to doubt his gracious loving kindness, she begins to be suspicious of his law. See, it's through the eyes of legalism that the beauty and goodness of God faded away for, from her. The fruit became the thing of beauty. As the verse says, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Suspicion and doubt about the goodness of the lawgiver leads to suspicion and doubt about the goodness of his law. Suspicion and doubt about the goodness of the lawgiver leads us to suspicion and doubt of the goodness of his law. We're going to talk more about this, but I want to give one more example. In Exodus 20, again, as we see God give what was written on the heart of man from the very beginning, he, he gives it in a summary of the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, we need again to recognize the setting in which God gives his people, the law. 
We're not going to read through all Ten Commandments. We're going to read through what's called the preface to the Ten Commandments, verse 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, this is something I mention frequently. Redemption precedes obedience. This is, this is the pattern that God has given. He says, in my abundance that I've provided you in the garden, these, this is my standard. And again, with his people Israel, I have rescued you. I have brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. I have rescued you out. I've redeemed you. You are my chosen people. You are mine. And that is the context that I now give you my law. Again, the people should have seen the law in the light of whom they belong to. But as Paul says in Romans 9, they did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were based on works. They forgot all about that preface that we just read. They forgot that it was that God had already redeemed them, that God had already brought them out of Egypt, that he called them his people, brought them into relationship with him. They forgot about that and assumed that it was the law that brought them into relationship with him. He says, you're putting the cart before the horse. See the beauty of the lawgiver and you will see the beauty of my law. Like Adam and Eve, their, their view of the lawgiver and his law was distorted. Now we come to us as, as Christians, as believers. And we need to first, before we see the beauty of the law, before we can say, like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law, which may, may be a foreign thing to you. Like, really, can we talk about the law that way? Can we really say that I love the law? Because maybe if you've listened to my last two sermons as I'm talking about it in a sense of law and its condemning nature, law as, as the law that comes from our just heavenly judge, if we hear it that way, like, how can I love it? But again, Paul says in Romans 6 that we are new we walk in a newness of life. We're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And that's because we belong to the lawgiver and we relate to him as our father, our heavenly father. So notice first, just reading a few verses to show the abundance that God provides us in Christ. Romans 6.23, we, we finished our scripture reading this morning with it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're looking for eternal life? I've provided it for you. Eternal life. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
says, if I didn't even spare my son, my son, if I didn't spare my son, how am I not going to just give you everything? This is the abundance that is ours in Christ. 1 Peter 1, talking about our, our future hope, our inheritance, he says, in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. As heirs brought into the household of faith, the household of God as heirs along with Christ, that is our inheritance. We have a sure hope of what lies ahead, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. So it's in this newness of life, this new relationship that we have with God, and in this respect to the gospel that we see the abundance that he's given us in Christ, that we knew now ought to look at the law with new eyes. If we walk in newness of life, then we ought to view the law differently than we did when we were in, still dead in our sins and trespasses. So a verse that sometimes trips us up a little bit is John 14, 15, when Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And see, the, le the legalist in us hears that and we flip it. So I need to keep your commandments for you to love me. No, time out. That's not what I said. I said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I keep your commandments and you'll love me. No. If you love me, if you love the lawgiver, you will come to love my law. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not a threat. It's not a threat at all. It's, that verse is speaking of the Christian life. That we, be, we begin as a, we are now a new creation. Therefore, we walk in a newness of life. So we view our lawgiver as the most lovely of all. And therefore, what he calls holy and righteous and good, we call holy and righteous and good. We look at his law through new eyes and say, oh, how I love your law. As we look at the beauty of our Heavenly Father, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of our, of our lawgiver, we begin to taste, as the psalmist says, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we say, along with the psalmist, as we read this morning, as Larry read, oh, your words are sweeter than honey. Because you are beautiful, your law is beautiful. Think of the provision even that as we've walked through the last couple of weeks that we've considered in the law, as we call, as Paul will call, the law holy and righteous and good. The law points us to Christ. So when we are now come to Christ, come to God with faith in Christ, we are his children. We look back at those days when we were terrified of the condemning power of the law. And we can even say, oh, 
the law pointed out how far I have fallen from you. The law points out how horrible and lost I am, how sinful I am, how sinful my sinfulness is, and how sinful my even supposed righteousness is. Your law pointed that out. Your law pointed me to Christ because in my being steeped in my sinfulness and the law being held up as a mirror and I realized just how desperately against it I am, the law pointed us and points us to Christ as our mediator. The law, as Psalm 119 says, is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path directing you how to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Think about the provision of that. We can, we can understand God's word. We can look at his law and say, oh, Lord, rather than saying, this condemns me, I say, Christ took that condemnation in my place. And now I look at your law, Lord, and it shows me how I ought to walk how I can walk in a manner worthy of you, how I can please you, not to gain my right standing before you because Christ has done that. But I want to know how to please him. And he shows us how to please him in his word. So we can say, oh, your law is sweet. It is a lamp to my feet. It's light to my path. All of us, can look around the craziness of the world around us sometimes and we can praise the Lord that the law restrains everyone from evil. Not, as we know, not fully, but if, if the law w- weren't there as a restraining force, utter chaos would be abounding. The law restrains even the sinner. You think about that. I think Sproul uses the illustration of the posted speed limits. It's there. Sometimes we see it there and we're like, okay, I'm going to break that, but I'm only going to break it by so much. (laughs) I think I'm safe to go 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. If I go 20, that 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 might get me in trouble, but everyone else is going about this speed, so I can go about 15 miles over the speed limit. You're breaking the law, but that, that sign is still restraining you. It's still holding you back. So in a sense, the law restrains us, and we ought to all as believers praise God for that. That is evil as the world could be. And unrestrained, God restrains even our sinful impulses. What about when we, as believers still struggle against temptation. Well, this is where we understand that the same faith that we came to God with is the same faith that carries us through our lives. Because just like we can't look to the law to set us right before God, but must come to him by faith, even our sanctification, even that work of the Holy Spirit in us that is conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, first off, it's his work. But even that, we cannot divorce from faith. 
In the absence of faith, we revert to the law. We, re we start seeing the law again like Eve saw it, like Israel on Sinai saw it. It's restriction. This is as, as parents, uh, you're kind of thinking of our Halloween candy this year. I think Ellis came home and we weighed his candy, almost came in about four pounds. If he had no guidance from his parents, he would sit down and plow through four pounds of candy. And I, as his dad, and Courtney, as his mom, wants him to enjoy the candy. This isn't a perfect illustration. Most illustrations fall flat. But I want them to enjoy the candy, but I also want them to have good health. <laughs> I want them to have teeth that aren't going to rot out of their head. So there's restrictions. Like, hey, this is here for you to enjoy. I want you to enjoy it in the proper way. And I'm going to, since you don't quite know how to do that, I'm going to give you some direction. Now, we, he can either view that as, oh, thank you, Daddy and Mommy, for loving me so well. But like most of us, we see it as like, ah, oh, that's restriction. I just want it all. And then it leads to antinomianism. The lawlessness is like, I can steal that because it looks good to eat. That candy bowl looks like it, like it has some good fruit that I should dive into because it's just a restriction. But when he realizes, wait, my dad and mom love me. And even though I don't maybe understand this, they know what's right for me. And they want me to have it. They just don't want me to have all of it right now. Okay, I, I, I can obey that. And I can brag. I think so far they have. I haven't noticed any has been stolen. But very much, this is how we need to see the law now as believers as we look and we understand the beauty of our lawgiver. And then we see the beauty of his law. So when we're struggling against temptation, we can say, as we sang about earlier, as Christ said in the garden, not my will, but your will. Why? Why can I say not my will, but your will? Why not just give in to the beauty of this temptation and just dig into sin? Because faith points me to Christ. Faith points me to see my heavenly father as the gracious lawgiver. And therefore I understand his law is good. So he, even though I think that sin right now would satisfy me, I can look to him by faith. And he says, my ways are, are higher than your ways. My wisdom is higher than your wisdom. Trust me. It is not your good. Or those things when we fail to obey, when there's certain things that we should be doing and we're not doing it. And I think, okay, well, I'm not going to do that until my attitude is right about it. Got to be really careful with that. Because what that tends to do is just harden our hearts. I'm not going to obey until I want to obey. Well, again, we're looking at the law like Eve looked at it and like Israel looked at it as restriction. We're doubting the goodness of our Heavenly Father. We're doubting the lawgiver, and therefore we come into great suspicion of his law. Instead, when I know the right thing to do, 
What does the scripture say, first of all? If you know the right thing to do and do not do it, it is a sin. So when I know the right thing to do and I'm like resisting, again, I have to look back at Christ. I have to come to the lawgiver through faith, through eyes of faith in this newness of life that Paul has talked about. And I look at the lawgiver and I say, but you are wonderful. You are beautiful. Therefore, the things you command are wonderful and beautiful. The things that you forbid are truly things that I should hate. You hate it, I hate it. It's faith that keeps God, the lawgiver, supremely beautiful. It's through faith that we see God's unfailing and abundant love for us in Christ. And in turn, love for him. We, in turn, we love him. And we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. R.C. Sproul just to give it some other words here, speaking on the same subject, he says, he gives us his law not to take our, away our joy, but rather that our joy may be full. His law is never given in the context of meanness, but in the context of his love. We love the law of God because God loves his law and because that law is altogether lovely. How does the believer relate to the law? We relate to it through the beauty of the lawgiver. He has loved us and brought us into his family. Therefore, we love him. And what he calls beautiful, we call beautiful. As we turn, first off, before we go to the communion, just looking forward, as we've kind of established some, some questions along the way, We've got one more question that we're going to look at in this mini-series before we turn to De Deuteronomy. And the question is, okay, there, there are a lot of laws in here. Which laws are we as Christians called to obey? Which laws are we called to obey? And that's next week. As we do turn to communion... I love, John, John talked about our, uh, in our membership class this morning, the fact that we take the Lord's Supper every, every Lord's Day. I love that we do. Because even on a sermon like this, when we're thinking about the beauty of the lawgiver and therefore the beauty of his law, what, what paints a better picture for us of the beauty of our Heavenly Father and the beauty of our Savior than this? He has given us this, this special gift, this sacrament for us to enjoy, something for us to put our hands on and touch, to taste, to see. And he points us through these things to Christ. He says, I've given you my son. And if, again, if I didn't even spare my own son, what makes you think I'm gonna withhold anything else? So we come to the Lord's table, not because... We in and of ourselves are worthy to take it, but because Christ has gone before us, he is worthy. And only when we are hidden away in him are we able to come as his children to take this. And it doesn't mean that we come each Sunday somehow with a, 
We've, we've kind of had a prayer of confession and made our, our slates clean so that we can eat of it. No, we come recognizing that in this life, until my sanctification is made perfect and I'm glorified in eternity, until then I'm still stained with sin. I still struggle with sin. It is a struggle. But we come in the full assurance that Christ has finished all that was required of us so that we can partake of this table and enjoy it, that we can enjoy Christ. So this table is for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. All those who believe the message of the gospel and, and don't say that you, you, you stand on your own righteousness or don't say that you've, you've sinned so much that no, there's no way that God could ever love you. You keep, in both cases, turn your eyes to Christ. We rightly consider Christ and by faith in him alone, we come to him and we can partake of this with full assurance. If you don't believe that message, if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't get this Jesus thing, I don't understand what the gospel is, we ask you not to take it. Again, like we mentioned in Sunday school, God has some heavy words for that. There's judgment. We don't want to eat unworthily. And unworthily means we're, we're either outside of Christ or we're so given into our sin that we, are, that we see and despise for a time God and his law. So if you don't believe these things, we would ask you not to take of it. We don't want you to be confused. We, we want you to recognize that this is something that we don't, we take not to secure our salvation, but because we are saved. Redemption precedes obedience. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning and you're doubting and you're struggling some, I would encourage you to take it. Look to Christ. If you can look to Christ in the midst of your doubt and say, Lord, I doubt and I'm having a hard time, but you are beautiful, I would encourage you to take, take the elements this morning. Let me pray and then we'll take them together. Father, as we come before uh, this supper, I pray that you would give us your blessing through it. Father, we take it in... Um, kind of accord with your word. We have just heard trust the gospel proclaimed and we take it in the light of that same gospel. We take it in the light of the faith that you've given us through your Holy Spirit, the faith in Christ that only that that can give us a right standing before you. So Father, help us as we come before this table that you've richly provided for us to in a very real way, taste and see that you are good, to taste and see Christ and him crucified, dead, buried, raised, and ascended for us, that we will remember, Father, all that you've done for us, the abundance that you've given us in Christ, that you would nourish us on Christ, that you would help us to find our only hope our only comfort in life and death in the fact that we belong to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.